This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, I am told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. It is episode 53 of Play-By-Play Cast. It is the podcast about play-by-play broadcasters for play-by-play broadcasters. Of course, hosted by a play-by-play broadcaster. My name is Joel Gadet. Thanks, as always, for clicking subscribe or download and joining us here again on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts, uh, for interacting with us on Twitter as well. For all of you uh, that have done that over the last couple of weeks, much appreciated. You can find the podcast at PXPCast, or you can find myself at Joel Godet, J-O-E-L-G-O-D-E-T-T. I actually misspelled my name on last week's episode of the podcast and then just edited that out because it was mildly embarrassing. But uh, those are the Twitter handles, at PXPCast and at Joel Godet, if you'd like to interact with the show. And then as always, if you have a couple of seconds, throw us a rating or a review. Uh, it helps... You know, I always say it helps, and I think it does help. Like, the, the algorithms and all that stuff, like, it does make the podcast easier for people to find. But at the end of the day, like, it really just helps make me feel better about myself because people, like, are listening and throwing stars our way. So, like, from a, a solely selfish self-esteem standpoint, <laughs> if you have a couple of seconds and want to throw a star or a rating or a review our way, uh, feel free to go ahead and, uh, and do that. It would be uh, greatly appreciated. Uh, that being said, fun fact about episode 53 of Play by Play Cast. We've had the open for this podcast now 53 times, a full year plus of, uh, of Play by Play Cast with that open where we have the Tom Bodet, Joel Godet. They sound the same, but sort of, kind of, not really joke. Um, and, of course, Tom Bodette is, is the will leave the light on guy for Motel 6. I've recorded many of these podcasts on the road, such as life being a, a broadcaster, from various different hotels. However, episode 53 is the very first time that that Tom Bodette joke has ever been made on a podcast recorded at the Motel 6. We are in Moab, Utah for the podcast here this week. Uh, not for any broadcast purpose. Uh, vacation for me this week. And, and of course, instead of just recording this podcast before I went on vacation, I, I thought I would hold near and dear to the authenticity of it and, and record it the night before we put it out or the day we put it out. Because uh, it's been a fun week. And uh, this past day, Thursday, was uh, stupid busy. So... I'm actually recording the pod at 1 a.m. Mountain Time Friday to put it out uh, here on Friday morning. Uh, Woke up, watched the sunrise over what's called Dead Horse Point, uh, then hiked for five hours, then took a boat ride around the Colorado River, then took an hour just to get off my feet, then did another hike, which is supposed to take four hours. I did it in an hour and 40 minutes. I was exhausted. 
I don't think I should try that again. Uh, followed that up with a, a little uh, little burrito action, and then uh, then did some stargazing for what amounted to three hours uh, under just truly beautiful pitch black skies. All right. Anyway, all of that in the rearview mirror. Episode fifty three. Our guest is the voice of the Los Angeles Clippers, Brian Seaman, who uh, began his career in a little bit of a different way in some respects. I think a lot of you will find it familiar. And Brian and I talk about this. You look at the way people climb the ranks in minor league baseball to get to a major league job. You start at whatever level, and then you try to get to the next level, and then you try to get to double A, and then you try to get to triple A, and then hopefully you can crack it uh, to the major league level. A lot of people don't think about basketball that way or football that way. Uh, Hockey certainly works that way. Uh, But there are not a lot of people that are like, God, if I can just get an American indoor football league job, I can eventually parlay that into an NFL gig. Uh, Just like similarly, or so I thought, there were not a lot of people that would say, hey, if I could get into, you know, the ABA, the new ABA, uh, or the CBA, that could eventually get me to an NBA gig. I was wrong. Because not only was there at least one person out there that thought that way, he did it successfully. And that guy is Brian Seaman. Because when he got into this business, he kind of took the minor league route. He, he, not kind of, he took the minor league route through basketball. Which eventually led him to the Minnesota Lynx and the Minnesota Timberwolves. And now being the voice of the Los Angeles Clippers. So we talk about that route for Brian Seaman in his career. We talk about his time a little bit at Kansas. We talk about some different intricacies of how he broadcasts, uh, what his prep is like, what it's like being a solo voice in the NBA, uh, and then also some different interviewing skills and tactics depending on the different kinds of guys he's talking to, uh, and also how he handles being in the spotlight of being a team broadcaster in one of the top two media markets in this country in Los Angeles. Fantastic conversation. And I say that a lot, uh, but I really, when I got off the phone with Brian, uh, I was really happy with this conversation for a lot of reasons. And uh, I hope that shines through and I hope you guys enjoy it as well. Brian Seaman is the voice of the Los Angeles Clippers and he is guest on, I don't want to say number 53. We've had Two two parters, so I'm bad at math. Uh, guest fifty is he guest fifty? Guest forty nine. He's the guest on episode fifty three of Play by Playcast. I had two great years in the IBA, and then I had a half a season in the CBA before the entire league folded. But um, you know, it, it's funny you bring up minor league baseball because I looked at those guys climbing the ladder that way, and that's kind of how I formed my blueprint was. Okay, I'm going to do the minor league route as well. I'll get to the CBA at the time it was, or I was hoping to get to the CBA, I should say. At the time, it was owned partially by the NBA. And I thought if I could get to that level, if I were to contact an NBA team, they would definitely know where I was and they would know that I was a legitimate play-by-play guy. That was always my belief. So the first two years in the IBA were awesome. Now, it is, you mentioned, it's not structured like that. There's no feeder teams. There were teams that would literally have in a 32 game season they would have because they would just keep changing players out 50 players throughout the year. I mean, it was crazy. We got a $10 a day per diem. It was a bus league. 
Um, so picture, you know, the northern part of the United States. We're going from D- Des Moines was the southernmost city in it. So that's middle of Iowa. You're going to Winnipeg, Canada, Saskatoon. We were if these were bus rides, 12 hour Fargo, North Dakota, South Dakota. <laughs> we said we got to see some pretty neat stuff. But what I learned at that point was um, I'm not going to climb the ladder because of my tape. I, you know, it might be good. It's a subjective business. So somebody in, you know, whatever Milwaukee for the bucks would say, this guy's not very good. And somebody in Minnesota might say, Hey, we like this guy. So it was subjective, but to climb the ladder for me to get to that next level with, to me was a CBA wasn't about the tape. It was about what else I could do. So I learned how to sell. I learned how to do public relations, community relations. I spoke at Kiwana club meetings, rotary club meetings. I didn't like doing it, but I felt like if I had that on my resume, that I could get to that next level. And truth be told, I really believe that's why I was hired in the CBA. Forget whatever talent I may or may have had at that moment in time. It was because I could do everything else. And the CBA was kind of my 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 leaping platform, so to speak, that I was able to get to where I wanted to be after that. What of that has come in most handy uh, after the fact now when you think about it? Um, I, you know what? To me, it's it's uh, for me with the Clippers now, like I want to be a part of the whole organization. So technically, I'm only paid to do the games and that's fine. And there are a lot of people in the NBA that that's all they do. And that's 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 it. They're good for me. Like I want to be in with the organization. So when the sales department needs a guy to voice over a a potential radio spot, when the community relations team needs somebody to host an event, when digital needs me to fill in something, because I had that background of wearing multiple hats, I feel like when they ask me to do it, I'm I'm truly honored to do it. And so um, I think a lot of people would bristle at that. Maybe not a lot, but some of them would be like, well, I'm only here to do a play-by-play job. If, you're, if you want me, you've got to pay me. I don't have that attitude. I'm, I, I just want to be as deeply uh, rooted with the organization as possible. Uh, how about the, the, the minor league aspect of what you did in those leagues as well? I, I, I remember reading the, uh, the Paul Shirley book a couple of years ago, the Can I Keep My Jersey? Um, did you have any, like, Can I Keep My Jersey-esque moments uh, in, the, in the CBA and the IBA? You know, I read that book, but it's so long ago. Paul Shirley, I think his last go-around in the NBA was my first year. He was in the training camp with the Timberwolves. Oh, wow. And I was, I was fascinated just by him and his ability to kind of like, I mean, whatever the opposite of taking yourself seriously is, that's what he was. He was on the maybe too far on the opposite end of the spectrum. Possibly. I mean, we, I mean, he was a blogger at the time. I mean, Twitter really wasn't where it is now. So he was blogging and a lot of the stuff was hilarious and clearly well-written. So we would go to certain arenas and there would be more people cheering for Paul Shirley. Now we weren't <laughs> going to NBA arenas than they were for Kevin Garnett. It was crazy because he had such a following, I think at the time, he was writing for for uh, ESPN. I, I remember reading that book, but I can't recall of it any of it. But um, you know, the minor leagues, there's always some kind of story going on. I mean, it, it was it was fun. It was crazy. It's it's just a bizarre situation. And I, I am I'm so proud of those years. You know, when I was in the CB, I mentioned it was only half a year. You know, I showed up and I showed up in August of 2000. And two weeks later, paychecks came and everybody celebrated. And I thought that was weird. Like, I thought that was a bizarre thing to go down. And I'm like, it's payday. Okay, great. Well, I found out 
two weeks later that they don't always come on time. And then when they do, they're not always full of what they should be of in terms of your full stipend. So I was like, oh, okay. So I actually worked about two months for free. Uh, didn't get a paycheck in the year 2001. So I worked January, February. The league folded in, in the first week of February. And I never saw that money again because Isaiah Thomas at the time was owning the team he became insolvent and it was just kind of a crazy deal. But um, those are my minor league stories. There's several others that are more uh, kind of a happier, kind of a happier note, but those are the ones that stand out that are kind of in, in hindsight for sure are a lot more fun. What are you thinking when like you've, you've laid out this plan that I want to get to the CBA in an effort to help get me to the NBA. And when you finally get to the CBA, it folds. Uh, what are you thinking as far as where you go from here? So I felt like a little bit of buzzards luck, but at the same time, I don't know if I would encourage this for everybody, but like whenever I got a job early in my career, my thoughts were what's next, where am I going next? How am I going to get there? Um, I smelled the roses, so to speak. I stopped and smelled the flowers, so to speak, but I kept my mind like, where am I, where am I headed next? So as I mentioned, the CBA at the time had a working relationship with the NBA. One of the first things I did, and so by that, we had all of the media guides in the blue book, which has every media member you know, in every market's email address, telephone number. And at the time, it was probably more popular to send like a regular piece of mail, like a letter through the mail. That's how old I am. So what I did was I took all of those media guides home and I wrote every radio and television announcer. And then I had the address for all the directors of broadcasting because I wanted to see how good my tape would be. I wanted it to be the best it could be before I presented it to an NBA guy. So um, when the league folded, I had already done the work that I felt like I needed to do to get to that next level. I had created correspondence with probably 30 NBA guys, both radio and TV, have been given terrific advice, one of which was get to the WNBA as fast as you can. And that's what happened the following summer. So I was bummed out for sure that I wasn't going to be calling any games. The atmosphere that I was working in was without a doubt the worst I've ever been in. It was just not a fun place to go. So it was kind of a bittersweet situation, but I, I felt like I gained what I needed to gain. And that was contacts in the NBA and a tape with the CBA kind of game in the background. What was the, the get to the WNBA as quickly as possible? Um, I mean, I guess the league is what at that point, four years old, if that? Yeah, so two, maybe three years oh, wow, old okay. tops. Yeah, it was it was a young. Ah, no, you're you're right, you're right, because it started in '97, June of '97. Um, so, so what's the methodology on? Hey, like this WNBA thing could be an, a foray for broadcasters to to crack into the the NBA. Yeah, so that I wondered the same thing when it was told to me. So, and it was great advice. It was probably the best advice that was ever given. Um, it was a guy named Mike Inglis. He's now that he's currently the radio voice of the Miami heat. We've yeah. crossed paths literally hundreds of times <laughs> since then. And I bring it up to him every time. I'm like, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. So his thought was get to the WNBA that way you will number one, be hired by an NBA team. Because at that point in time, all of, I think there were 10 teams, all of them were owned and operated by an NBA club. You played at NBA arenas, you traveled NBA like style, um, but more importantly, you are hired by an NBA broadcasting director, and then you're going to be working in an NBA market. He's like, get there as fast as you can. And it, it just, as it always is, the common denominator for everybody in our business that's at where they want to be is, is luck. And so I happened to run into a friend of a friend that said, hey, I heard this guy was leaving in Minnesota. 
And I'm like, okay. So I, I, I went to, and one of the first times I ever Googled somebody, this is in the year 2001, <laughs> I Googled this guy and it turned out he was the radio guy for the Minnesota Lynx. And now he was leaving. And I called them up the same day that basically it was official. Uh, and I remember their reaction was like, really, you, you're interested. And I'm like, I'm very interested in this job. <laughs> I've just got done with the CBA and like, well, we're, we're literally months away from even doing anything, but stay in touch and we'll get to you. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it was really great. You know, I remember getting the job in mid April of 2002, biggest break of my career. And it was the WNBA. I mentioned how much I love the minor leagues. The WNBA was absolutely one of the biggest treats of my life. They were so awesome to deal with and be around. And, uh, I'm positive. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the WNBA. Uh, why is that? What, uh, what made it a great place to be for, was it five, five, six years? Uh, from 02 to 07. So I think that's six seasons that I did it. Um, well, first thing, the travel is challenging. You're, you're traveling at like four 30 in the morning. Like, so you played in, say we were in Minnesota, we'd fly to Indianapolis and then we'd play that night, stay over. But the, the way that per diem works, and this is how all teams are in the minor leagues in the WNBA, at least at the time, I think if you stay past 11 o'clock in the city that they have to give you an extra per diem, like an extra chunk of the per diem. So all flights were you were you were out by 4.30, 5.30 in the morning. So that was the only downside. Everything else was just, I mean, it, I was euphoric when I would go back to the, because I was living in Denver with my wife before we got married and I would travel to Minnesota for the summer. And the, the ladies were just awesome. I mean, they were just, number one, they're super talented. And the game is a lot of fun to watch. You have to get invested in it. Once you are, you're going to be hooked. But there wasn't a player that was off limits to talk to. Like sometimes you have that in the NBA that there's grizzly guys and they're, they're not going to do any pregame talk. And then postgame, they can be a bit snarly. None of that. Coaches, I would go out with them for to dinner after the games. We'd all travel. So there's only 18 of us on the travel flight. Um, and we'd all get to know each other. It, it was just, it, it really felt like a college atmosphere in a great, in all the great ways. And I miss it. I actually miss it. When I came out to LA, I didn't get to have the opportunity to do it and I missed it. But like I said, you're hired by an NBA director in an NBA market by an NBA team. And so what happened in, in the summer of 02, I did my first year. And then just a few months later, uh, a scheduling conflict uh, for the radio play-by-play -play guy and boom, they called me up and they said, can you be in Los Angeles for a game on March 7th for the Lakers and Timberwolves. And I, I mean, I think I can make, I don't, it, yeah. I don't know if I ever remember being that crazed before. Like think about a kid on Christmas, like they get all the, the toys there, multiply that by a thousand. I mean, I went bananas and I was so excited and I thankfully had a few days to calm down before I called the game, but that was a great day. And in that moment that were, there was it, I had an NBA tape and I kept thinking to myself, no matter what happens from here on out, now, you might not ever call another game. You did one. You did one game for the rest of your life. You'll have that. No one can ever take it away. Thankfully, I've been able to call several more, but that day always stands out. And it's special. I, I Staples Center was the first game I ever did, you know, 14 years ago. And that's my office. And I go in there every day. And I think about that every time I go in there. What was that first game like? Uh, and, and what was your approach in terms of the savoring the moment or the like, don't mess this up, Brian, or uh, how did you uh, kind of approach that? And what was your mental uh, state? Yeah, well, it's funny. Um, I'll get to the mental state where I was, which I was shockingly surprised at where I was, but 
you know how like in uh, I, I like to play golf and I, I used to listen to the sports psychologists talk about, you know, their golfers that they would be coaching or whatever. And they'd always say, don't look at it as a big moment. Look at it as the next shot. You don't want a shot on the driving range to feel any different than the shot on 18 on a Sunday in a major. Everything emotionally wants to be the same. Instead of that, like right thinking, I'm thinking this is the biggest moment of your life. If you screw this game up, you will never do. I mean, that's how <laughs> stupid I am. I'm just like, I don't know if I wanted to be able to, to thrive in the pressure and say that I did it and, and know that I felt that way. It was a bad approach, but it's funny as, as the game got on, uh, as the game, you know, as we approached leaving the hotel, I was eerily calm, like to the point where, and I had done a few years in the minor leagues and I had done Drake football and I had done a season of WNBA. So I kind of knew, I knew the producer that I was going to be working with to be honest. And I'm not a, I'm not a very overconfident person, but I felt that this time I was like, this is it. You're ready. You're going to, you're going to crush it. And I felt at the time it was the best game that I could do at that point in time. The prep was challenging. You know, it's hard to pick up a team that's, you know, three fourths of the way through the season. Um, so I did a lot of stuff of researching the analyst who is Jim Peterson. He's now the TV analyst for the Minnesota Timberwolves and I think is the best in the game. Um, so it was easy to work with him. He made it a lot of fun. Um, but I just called the game the way that I wanted it to be called, knowing that this might be it, do it your way, do it the way you feel good about it. And, and it, it really, it went really well so much so that a few weeks later they called me again. And I actually got to go on a four game road trip with them and do all the games on radio. So it 2002, 2003 was as special of a year for me, just from a professional standpoint as it, as it ever could be. I mean, it was so fun to do those games. And I realized that, yes, this is the lifestyle that I would like to live. And I was hopeful to be able to get there one day. You go on to become uh, the the voice of the Timberwolves, I know, uh, in 2006, and then you became, obviously, the voice of the Clippers where you're at now. Uh, what is it like being a radio voice in Los Angeles and having the spotlight of uh, that size market and uh, and that size magnifying glass on you every time you put a headset on? You know, it's it, it can be daunting if you think about it. And then I think about it. In another way, I go to myself, no matter how good I'm going to be, let's say I'm, I, I surpass any expectations of my own expectations by a thousand percent. I will never be one of the top five voices in this city. When you think about Chick Hearn, <laughs> Vin Scully, Bob Miller, Ralph Lawler, the list goes on. You'll never be better than those guys. So that almost it either it's either kind of uh, it makes you feel upset or it just kind of gives you kind of a house money. You know what I mean? Like you can do whatever you want, no matter what. Um, I never think about, you know, being in LA. I think about, cause I think it's more global now on radio, you know, with Sirius XM and, and um, you know, the internet, we get tweets from Australia. I mean, it's pretty crazy. So I try to talk to everybody, not just in LA. It doesn't, it doesn't bother me. Um, I, I know, uh, like on, you know, we have a great radio station. We're on iHeart here. AM 570 is our flagship, huge signal. So it covers all over LA. And uh, I, I just, I get really fired up. If I, if you told me that there are going to be 10 million people listening, it doesn't make me nervous. It makes me excited. Like I'm even more motivated uh, if that's possible, because I'm always really excited to do the games, whether it's a preseason game in October, or as we've been lucky to call the last few years, some, some really fun playoff ball games. So being in LA to me, it's no different than it was when I was in Minnesota. I, I don't see any of the people that I'm talking to. I just assume that 
I'd like to assume anyway that there's a lot of people listening. I don't know if the numbers would always suggest that, <laughs> but it doesn't bother me. If you told me one person is listening, I'm still fired up and I'm going to let that person know everything they need to know about this game and these teams and these players. I saw a quote from you that said, uh, my style is a little different because my personality is a little different. Um, what does that mean to you and, and how does your personality and how do you let your personality uh, flow into what you do on the air? I think, and, I, and I, you probably have overcome this already with you, but I think um, finding your personality on the air is the number one thing and the hardest thing to do. And, you know, I look at the other, we'll use the radio guys, the other 30 guys in the NBA. All of them are fantastic. All of them are great. I think the NBA and, and the place where they are with play-by-play guys, especially on radio, is solid. And what separates us is our personality. So what's a personality on air? Well, it's obviously, you know, how you have fun or what you think is important. That's what I think it gets down to. So there's other announcers that really hit the stats hard because that's what they love. That's what they grew up liking about the NBA or sports. There are others that, you know, just want to be themselves and be kind of a character on the air. That's great. To me, I want to be just who I am. Sometimes I want to have fun, self-deprecating, but at the end of the day, I want to entertain. I want to inform and I want to make sure people understand what's happening. So I take myself very seriously um, when I prep, like I want to know everything. But as soon as I get on the air, that's the I'm not taking myself serious. I'm trying to have fun. If I make a mistake, man, I'm going to let you know that I'm an idiot. If I have an interesting story, I'm going to say, hey, look, I'm going to tell you it a couple of times because I think it's worth repeating. My personality is different than your personality, but that doesn't mean that you know, this guy A is better than this guy B because the personalities are different. To me, it's all about what you view as important and who you are as a person. Like I said, I'm pretty self-deprecating. I've got a lot of material in that regard. So I like to have fun with it that way. And I, again, I take myself very seriously when I'm prepping for a game and I like to prep. It's a good process. But as soon as I hit the air, all bets are off. We'll have fun with everything. And sometimes you don't use any of the numbers and you know this, you don't use any of the stats because either the game is good or there's a separate storyline, or you're having fun with, in our case, a host, as opposed to we don't have an analyst on radio, uh, that we're just having a good time together. So if I feel like if I'm having fun, then the people that are listening, I think, would have fun. Uh, I think because they know where I'm coming from in the sense of they know that I'm not there to screw around. They know that I'm trying to help them out, understand what's going on. But if I can have a laugh, I think they can too. This is probably a horrible audio question. Um but I'll try it. Uh, what is, what does your prep look like? Uh, <laughs> what's your chart look like? How do you organize things so that you know where they are, that they're easily uh, readily available and findable and that there's never a moment where you're like, I know I put this down, but where did I put it? You know, it's, it, this is the funny, these are like fingerprints. Everyone's <laughs> is different. Yeah. I mean, it's really funny. You know, I've seen people that have, you know, they use those manila folders that kind of, you know, you put in filing cabinets yep. and they'll just have like, you know, words that go around the corner and sentences that go around, you know, just like in circles. And they're just like, they look like giant chicken scratches. But if you were to listen to them on the air, you know that these guys have their stuff together. It's pretty funny that way. For me, I needed to be more organized. Um, So, and for years I did it by hand and it became very kind of unsettling when I would think about four games in five nights. I mean, just filling out the board itself took a half hour. That's before I did any stat work. That's just numbers school, height, weight, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, for me, everything is, is in columns. So I have two columns on my page and then they're, you know, by the, the numbers and then the basic, basic stuff that I have, like I literally wouldn't function properly if I didn't have their season stats, the last game that they played. And then the last game they played against for this example, the Clippers, 
that is, that's 10% of my work, but it takes a little while to get there. Um, but I love trends. So I'll look at not only every game that a player has played, but sometimes every game they've ever played, I like to see what their trend is, what's going on. And I've not been able to figure out, to be honest with you, am I trying to tell you the future or, or am I trying to identify a storyline? I've never been able to figure out what my motivation there is other than I just want to know it. And if somebody else, if I want to know it, I feel like somebody else would want to know it. So I look a lot of stat work and that probably takes up 70% of the prep. But the reality is I'll take one good story over 10 great stats any day. So you get those stories by talking to the players, you know, over the course of the year, I certainly do a lot of just basically blank searches online, you know, looking for interviews for players, YouTube interviews, pre-draft interviews, anything that you can get from like, Hey, how did you develop your free throw shot? And I'm making the story up, but, Oh, I used to love my mom's um, sweet potato pie, but she wouldn't let me eat it until I had a thousand free throws made for the day. That kind of stuff, I mean, is just gold in my book. So I organize all that. It's color-coded. Um, so I know what is a season stat. I know what is a quote-unquote nugget. I know what the last game is against us, what the last game they played was, period. And it's it's fairly well organized. I wouldn't say my, my wife would likely agree. I'm not the most organized person in real life. But <laughs> on my on my boards, I know where everything is. But to be honest with you, I think once you write it down, or at least in this case, you type it in, it kind of is committed to memory. I'm sure you've had that same experience yourself. Once you do it, you know it, and you're just there for a reference. And it's almost like taking a test before a game. I just review it, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember all that stuff. And it comes out because you never know when you're going to use it, as you know, with all the years you've done this. So it just as long as you have it there, it's good. When it comes to drawing stories out of guys, um, what's your approach in terms of that, especially because – uh, your time can be so limited with them. Uh, and I mean, I don't know how certain guys work, but like, I mean, like if you've got a guy like Blake Griffin, uh, I don't, maybe it is, I don't, it's probably hard to get one-on-one time with a guy like that. Um, and if it is, it's, I, I would imagine it's limited. I could be wrong. Um, but what's it like to develop kind of relationships and rapports, but also be efficient with your time um, to, to get ultimately um, what you need to know to say on the air? That's a great question because some players, so we'll use Blake and we'll use Chris as one example. And I'll give you a couple of Blake and Chris are very guarded, um, good people. That's, but they're very guarded. And so for me to kind of, I, I don't do anything deliberate other than like I show up to every shoot around. So they see me every shoot around. I don't always ask them questions. I'm just there. Um, so they know, and that, you know, I mean, Blake's been here since, you know, literally the day he was drafted. So he's, he knows what I'm about. He's, I'm not there trying to tweet out a story or do something crazy. So if I needed to get one-on-one time with Blake once or twice a year, it would happen. But the problem with those guys is that they sometimes can talk in cliches and there's sometimes there's not a really a way around it. The best way around that is no microphone, none. That's the best advice I could give somebody. It was given to me when I first started, I'd interview players and it'd be, you know, Oh, you know, it'd be every cliche in the book. You never, never know on any given day, blah, blah, blah. I took away the mic and then all of a sudden you start getting like the real story. So if you just went up to talk to some of those guys the ice would melt, so to speak. The wall would come down. Um, then you have guys like, we'll use DeAndre Jordan and Jamal Crawford. Uh, equally great guys as Blake and Chris, but their personalities are different. And DeAndre, I've known him since he was a teenager. 
And so anytime I see him, I can ask him anything and he'll tell me, I, again, I don't use a microphone because I, I think it sounds better when you tell the story and you can weave it in through certain things like free throws or 20 second timeouts. And, you know, Jamal is the same way, but I research these guys all year. And even in the off season, like, you know, in August, I start kind of looking around and looking up stories of what may have happened. Obviously I've seen Deandre grow up in front of us uh, since he was drafted, but with a guy like Jamal that played so many years before he joined, I, I feel like I unearth an Easter egg every, every couple of weeks when I kind of dig in on the story and I go and I talk to him about it. And I've learned that he was, I think he was gambling with Michael Jordan one day and got into debt and Jordan pulled him out of a club and, yeah, I mean, it was kind of crazy. Jamal Crawford is like Forrest Gump. I mean, he has lived the <laughs> life. I don't mean it any other way other than the experiences he has had and uh, the people that he has come across knowingly, unknowingly, uh, one of the great people that I've been around. But I think being present, to answer your question, I think being present in this situation and you work for a school, you can do this, although their time is, you know, it's only four years. But if you're there and they see that you care and that you're asking smart questions, you know, like I don't go to DeAndre and ask him about his free throws. You want to shut somebody down, bring up a negative. You know what I mean? Like, sure. I, I don't do that. So I just ask him, you know, what did he work on in the summer? Tell me about, you know, this player, you played with him. And, and sometimes that conversation will go on to, oh, yeah, I spent some time with him overseas. Oh, what'd you do overseas? Oh, I took a vacation with um, so-and-so. He went to Monaco and, oh, man, I you know, gambled. I never played blackjack before or whatever. Those things come out. It's, I, you know, you get guys like Lee Jenkins, the greatest writer, I think, of our time for Sports Illustrated. I mean, people just want to tell him stuff because he's so good. Um, I, I think for me, there's not going to be a flip that you can switch that all these, all of a sudden these guys are going to start telling you their life story. For me, I've just been kind of the slow burn guy. I'm around. They know that I'm not going to ask them every single day a question, but when I do, I make it count. I agree. You got to be very time you know, savvy with it because you're not going to get more than two minutes of their undivided attention. So being around to me is the best advice I could give somebody. And they see that you understand what's going on and that you're not going to ask stupid questions. I think that's what it comes down to. How do you keep track of like when you talk to guys and it's not recorded? Is there a, like, do you have a system? Like, will you go back and like have a note card on a guy and like, all right, make sure I remember this as it was told to me so that if it comes up in my mind, I know I've got it hundred percent right a week from now. That's exactly what I do. So the phone, uh, I just put it in my notes. I, I literally will turn right around at the word done and they're, they're going into the huddle or starting practice. I type it into the notes uh, and I'll send it to myself so that I have it, you know, not only on my phone, but now, quote unquote, in the cloud. Um, and so it's on all my devices. And then I'll just take that and I'll transfer it into the board that I use for the Clippers. Um, the one great thing about being a team broadcaster is that you'd always have to use that seat. You can always use that same board. It's digital for me now, as I mentioned earlier, and I'll just slide that in there under that player's name and number. I'll say, okay, like I can, I don't have it in front of me, but like Luke Bamute is a prince. You know, his dad is a king in the community that he grows up, that he grew up in. And so I asked him about it. I'm like, does it sound like it sounds? And he's like, no, it's more <laughs> like a city count. He's like, it's more like a city council seat than anything else. But it, there's definitely a nice vibe to it. And um, I, like I said, I don't have the numbers in front of me and stuff like that. But so I put it right in there and I keep it there. And so you want to make sure that you're 100% accurate. But I, I just like I said, I find that the microphone is a built in wall and they're going to they're just going to be icy about any answer. We had a guy, although that said, we had a guy named Chris Kamen, who is one of my favorites to deal with. 
And Chris was, I was with the Clippers from 07. Chris was with the, with us from 07 to, well, he was traded in December of 11 with the Chris Paul deal. And so I, let's say I interviewed Chris 30 times. I'll bet you more than half of them I could not use on a microphone because of the things that he said. There's no filter for him. So there was either bad stories about players that he's playing with today. I'm like, I can't, Chris, I can't say that. I, I can't put that on the air. And then he'd swear back at me. And I mean, it would, that's just who he is. Like, it's a fun thing that he was one of my favorites to deal with, but everybody other than Chris Kamen, I think a microphone just builds that wall and it's hard to get over. And if you can get around it, and I understand sound bites. I get all that. Um, the way around that is I'd ask him a few questions off mic. And then if you had to get a sound bite, then that's the last thing I do. But these guys are going to be more willing to chat um, without that microphone. And when you do get that conversation, write it down, put it in your notes, put it in your phone, do what you got to do to keep it, uh, so to speak in memory. And that'll, I think that's the best thing that I was ever told as kind of a younger play by play guy. On that note, uh, I, I saw in another interview you did too, that you, you said you ask more of doc off air than you do on air and that your on air questions, you usually know the answer to ahead of time. Um, what are the types of things you ask him off air uh, and, and how does that help mold your understanding of what you're looking at every night? So sometimes I'll ask him about a certain play that's run uh, and I'm not trying to break down X's and O's. So uh, one of the play, one of the things I'll give you a couple examples. One of the plays, it's a three man weave uh, at the top of the key. And it's hard for me to describe it without sounding monotonous. So if you're familiar with the three man weave, basically that ball is touching three different players within two seconds. And so instead of me describing it and, and kind of getting bored myself because they ran it frequently, I asked him, I said, can you tell me about this play? What are you trying to achieve? And so um, he says, well, I want to have either Austin or Jamal have the ball, kind of a live ball where they can drive or they can kick it to somebody else. So when that play begins, hey, and the Clippers uh, toss the ball around three-man weave top of the key. Doc told me that this is what they're looking for. And then there's Austin Rivers goes down the lane to the rim with the right hand. So I, I don't want to, I, those are kind of questions that I ask him. Sometimes I'll ask him about, Hey, you played with this player. Do you have any good stories about him? He's Oh yeah, I got a good one. Or I, <laughs> I don't have a good one. And I'm like, well, I won't ask you about that. Or I will ask you like, he'll start to tell me the story. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Just tell me on the air. Um, you know, and sometimes if there's a, a topic that might be sensitive, like for an example, uh, a few years ago, we had a player, Glenn Davis, big baby. And uh, Doc sent him into the locker room during a second quarter in a game in Houston. And it was it was newsworthy. I mean, it got on ESPN and the next night we played. But before the game, I wanted to make sure I said, look, this happened. Can I talk to you about it? And, oh, yeah, yeah. No, no problem. I'm like, I'm going to ask you about it. What you do? How do you handle it? What's the postmortem on it? Do you guys have a separate meeting? And, you know, it turns out to be to me, it's it, number one, it, it helps him understand, like, I'm not trying to dig for stuff that is inappropriate. I want him to know that I, if he doesn't want to talk about it, I'm not going to talk about it. But if there's something good, I'll let him, you know, save it um, for the air. So those are the kind of things I ask him, you know, we get, I'd say 10 minutes with Doc and, you know, four of those minutes are on the, on the interview. And then there's a TV interview that lasts a couple of minutes. And we're just kind of wrapping for a little while just to figure out where I want to go with that interview. Cause Doc is so great. You don't want to blow the opportunity. His, his answers are always thought out. There's always wisdom behind it. So I don't, you know, I won't lie. There's been coaches in the past, both in the NBA, IBA and CBA, where I'm like, this is just going to be like, 
a root canal. I'd rather have that than interview these guys. But Doc is the opposite. He's going to give you so much good stuff that you want to be prepared. So, you know, instead of just kind of winging it, I've always got a topic here and there to talk about because it, and it goes beyond basketball too. I mean, it's just been a lot of fun. So I want to make sure that I take advantage of that time with Doc and let him get some thoughts generated. If we're going to talk about an off topic thing um, and kind of let him know, look, I'm going to ask you this question. This is, this is all I'm trying to find out. You can tell me whatever you want to, what, what you're comfortable with, but this is a topic that I'm going to ask you about if that's all right with him. I'm curious about the, the, the technical aspect of calling a game too. And, and I'm curious too, when you talk about what you talked about with doc there in terms of how you describe a different play differently or what they're trying to accomplish um, in what they're doing. How much do you try to get into the flow of action or I guess how, What's your approach in terms of what you can say and when you can say it, how descriptive you can be, um, if you can talk about what a guy looks like or what a play looks like developing, or, or are you somebody that tries to be as simple as you can and then go back and describe things a little bit more in depth when you get a second afterward? Everybody has their own style, and to me, there's no wrong one. Like I said, there's 30 NBA guys, present company excluded, I would tell you they're all awesome. I just, I love listening to everybody. I go up and down the dial. I learn something from them every night. So with that said, I go solo. I go solo for every game I do. And a lot of people are like, oh man, that's really hard. And it can be. There are nights where you're taxed and it's the game is brutal and it's just been tough. Those happen maybe three times a year. The other games, I'm like, this is the way I would prefer to do it. So from a description standpoint, I guess we'll go back. It, it was in the mid nineties and I was starting out. I'd been working. Um, uh, I was the assistant sports director for my high school radio station. And I did some games and it was very, you know, like, did you ever play an instrument when you were growing up? Did you ever learn how to trumpet player? Yeah. Okay. So like one of the first things I'm guessing you learned was a very simple song. Like let's, we'll use, I use, I played piano. So like Mary had a little lamb. There's four notes. It's it. Just, that's all it was. And so those four notes for me in basketball calling play by play was Johnson over to Smith, back to Jones, up top to Johnson, over to Smith, back to Jones. I'm like, okay, so that's easy. I'm following the ball, but now you got to kind of jazz it up a little bit. So then you start to get, you know, the, the location, location, location. Well, so I'd get left side, right side, up top, down low, left, down low, right. Well, I remember listening to the game, like, hey, you're following the ball. You got those, you got your brain trained. And I remember driving around, listening to the NCAA tournament mid 90s on the radio. And it's an innocuous play, but it, it literally, I mean, like, literally blew my mind. The guy says, here's Smith, brings it across half court, right handed, hip eye dribble. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> you can describe the height of the dribble. I bet you could describe a lot of different things. And so I went home like a mad scientist and I saw, so I basically, I drew us a, a court and I, I started thinking of all the elements that are involved, the ball, the players, the uniform, the length of the short. Um, what is the coach doing? What are the fans doing? Where are the officials? And no question early on in my quote unquote career, I overdid it. Like I was way too much and I wanted to have a fancy phrase for every play of the game. And I've gone back home. Uh, I go back home every summer to Iowa with my family and I stumbled across some tapes and I remember like cringing, like, Oh my God, what were you doing? <laughs> but like at the same time, I'm like, you were, I was flexing a quote unquote creative muscle and I would rather ratchet it down than have to try to get somebody to, to invent one. So I was doing a bunch of descriptions. It was, it was 
it was gaudy is the right word to use. So I've tapered it back a ton, but I want to describe as much as I can because I go solo. I don't have an analyst. Uh, there's no time for anybody to come in. It's just all me. So I'm describing literally everything I can within reason. I don't want to drown and I don't want to kill the game. I don't want to bore the, uh, the, the listeners, but if doc rivers is roaming the sidelines with his arms folded in front of his chest, well, I'm going to tell you that as Chris Paul dribbles the ball to the wing, uh, you know, whatever. I want you to see what I'm seeing, whether it's a, a visual motion, a snapshot, whatever. Uh, I do it in real time um, because, again, I don't have an analyst. I can do that, and I don't have to worry about stepping on anybody's toes. But as much as I can describe within reason, uh, I want I, I want I want you to hear it. I, I get and I listen to every game I have ever done, and I take notes. I used to take physical notes. Now it's mental notes that. Uh, I say, you know, I want to make sure that I'm giving you three-dimensional stuff. Like it isn't over to, into, back to, it's left side, right side, up top. Um, and I take those mental notes and I make sure that I'm, I'm staying on course. There are times when your game is just awful. It happens when you do, you know, roughly 100 games a year. You're not going to be pitch perfect, but it's not going to be from a lack of effort. So if you're to go around the block, uh, to go next door, I describe as much as I can. Um, and there are days when I've said, that's just too much. Let's leave that one out. Not only does it, is it too much, but it slows you down to get back to the play at hand. Um, that kind of stuff. So I love description. I love reading descriptive writing and figuring out, can I use that word? Can I use that phrase? Does that help you see the picture more? Um, and that's kind of where I come from, but it all started with a hip high dribble with a right hand and it blew my mind. The solo thing I was curious about, too, uh, so I'm glad you brought that up, um, because I, I do a couple of games solo a year, and I, they, they drive me nuts. Um, <laughs> number one, because I hate the sound of my own voice for like that long a period of time, um, and I always feel like I'll pause, and then the, the, the dead air is just too long for like my liking, so they always drive me batty. Um, but the other thing that, that drives me crazy with it is I never feel like I can see everything if that makes sense uh when i've when i've got my partner with me i'm usually i'll lean on david to have seen how certain things developed away from the ball and he's really good at jumping in and describing the play after the fact um how do you best see as much as possible while you still have the responsibilities of you know ball player location time and score Uh, that's a great question um i've never tried to be an analyst um, I'll tell you my opinion, or I'll tell you maybe a strategic move like, oh, they're bringing DeAndre out because they're at the four foul mark with three minutes to play. They'll bring him back into the two minute mark. That's about as deep of a, you know, an analyst's role as I'll ever play. I'm not going to tell you how the play developed. You do television though, right? Uh, TV and radio. TV and radio. Okay. Um, because on, because on, my, my point was on TV, the fan can see what's going on. You wouldn't necessarily need to say how it broke up, but I don't try to be an analyst. I just, I, even if I did know the game at that level, which I don't, cause I didn't play it at that level. Um, you don't carry credibility. So my role is tell you what I see. Um, and then in the aftermath, I'll bring up all oh, Chris Paul used a great ball fake and that's what freed him up inside. Obviously that's elementary. You can see that yourself, but I never try to be an analyst. It just isn't going to work. Um, so I watch the ball and after the ball is shot, sometimes I watch what's going on underneath to see if there's the rebound. Sometimes I watch around the perimeter. Um, it varies. And one of the things about being with the team for certainly for as long as I've been, 
um, I, I kind of have an idea of what's happening. Like I have an idea of what is to come. And I don't mean that from a coaching standpoint. Like I just understand, um, you know, what this play is about. I've seen it a hundred times already. And we're not even to Thanksgiving. I know where Chris is going to be after he passes this ball. And that's not because I study the playbook. It isn't because I'm asking players what, you know, slice five means, which is a play code for them. It's just because I've seen it. And the more you see it, uh, the more you understand what's happening. But again, I don't go into the X's and O's as to why it happened, how it happened and what they should do next. Because it, even if I did know that it's just not, I don't carry the credibility um, and nor should I, I'm not looking to, to carry that kind of credibility with the fans. One more thing I wanted to get to you with also is, uh, I guess, kind of a buzz topic in, in broadcast circles um, nowadays, too, in the NBA. And I know uh, I know it's a pet peeve of Mark Boyle over here in Indiana, too. Uh, but location of broadcasters in arenas <laughs> nowadays. Um, what's it like for you uh, broadcasting on the radio in sometimes really good locations and sometimes less than ideal locations, uh, particularly when you're alone and uh, your eyes are the only eyes. So Mark, first of all, is awesome. Um, I don't know if you've had him on your podcast yet or not, but he is. I've not had he's an interest. Yeah. Oh, he is. I highly recommend it. Uh, very wise man uh, and a, a great listen. And the fans in Indiana are very lucky. He has a right to gripe because I think he started with the Pacers. I want to say in 1989, and from 1989 for Mark all the way to 2006, they were given front row seats every game. This isn't being spoiled. I know it sounds that way. It is not. And so for Mark to become accustomed for, you know, what, 18 years, 16 years, 17 years to sit in that spot, to be as descriptive as possible, uh, and then to be moved back, you know, sometimes in locations where you, you literally can't see a third of the court, they have a right to gripe because they, that's how they were brought up in terms of the seat, the view and the, the ability to call the game at the highest level. I came in the year uh, as a full-time announcer in 06. That was the first year the NBA said you can get those first row seats to the, the, the working media and we'll move your local radio guys back. Now, look, if you would have told minor league Brian that, Hey, you're going to call NBA games, but sometimes you're going to have a seat that isn't great and you're going to be 25 rows back at times, would you still want the job? What do you, I mean, obviously. <laughs> uh, so I, I've literally never have complained about the location, but that's because in, in theory, that's all I know, but there's a lot of veterans there that that's what they're used to. And the one gripe that I guess I would understand for sure with them, aside from that, that's what they're used to was they were giving those seats to beat writers and, and I love the beat writers do a great job in the NBA and we, you know, my info wouldn't be complete without reading them. So this is not an indictment on them, but they're giving a history report. You know what I mean? Like they're writing after the game, we're giving you a real time update. And I think that's where a lot of the guys got sideways with the decision. Um, but like I said, I came in, that's all I know. I've never complained about it. And until they tell me that I can't come to the arena to call the game, I'll be just fine. I think we'll be okay. But, uh, uh, highly recommend you chat with Mark Boyle. He is one of the best in the league. Indiana's lucky to have him, uh, and he'll he's he's he'll be he'd be a good insight to a lot of these questions that you've asked here. Um, Brian, uh, I, I appreciate you giving me the time today too. This was awesome, uh, and I uh, want to let you get back to to being uh, Doctor Dad today. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, is there a, a way that I guess people can follow you on social media or, or hear Brian Seaman best? 
Yeah, you know, and I, I, I have this is now third year in a row where I've vowed to be more active on Twitter. I think it's a great <laughs> medium. I'm, 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 I'm on there all the time. Like it is my main source of info. But I want to be an info provider, so I've made a conscious effort this summer to figure out what my voice on Twitter will be. And, and come next season, uh, I will have more of a presence there. But it's at B Seaman, B S I E M A N, and and the best way to hear. Uh, myself or any of the great NBA play-by-play guys is through the NBA app. It's I think it's $9 and you can hear all the audio from all across the NBA. If you're an aspiring play-by-play guy, whether you want to do football, baseball, whatever, you will learn something from all of those people uh, in the NBA. It's, we, it's, it's never been better, I think, in, in NBA radio and that's the best way to do it, the NBA app. So I will see you there. That's Brian Seaman, the voice of the Los Angeles Clippers, here on Play by Playcast, episode number 53 in the books. Uh, one thing that really stuck with me, too, by the way, let me go all the way back to the beginning. If you remember, he talked about getting involved in every aspect he could possibly get his hands on. And then what that meant to him with the Clippers, uh, that kind of hit home with me a little bit from the standpoint of he's only getting paid to do the games. But he still wants to, not only wants to, but leaps at the opportunity, and he used the word honored, is honored at the opportunity when he's asked by the sales team to you know, do a mock-up of an ad. Not an actual ad, like a mock-up of an ad that they could eventually sell to somebody that would then become a real one. Um, or to get involved in the community relations team and all that stuff. is just kind of bonus stuff. Just be around the team, be part of that family. Uh, that resonates... I think with with me in particular a lot, just in terms of always wanting to to be involved, and I don't mean that in a nosy way, in a bad way, but just wanting to be part of that culture and family. Uh, it struck me. Uh, I love the approach, uh, and I love the pride that Brian takes in that as well. So I just wanted to point that out uh, real quick as we wrap up here on episode number fifty three. Take a seven-day break. We will be back at it next week, and we're actually going to gravitate away from basketball for a week. We'll get back to it coming up here, but uh, we've had a couple NBA guys back-to-back. We're going to go to the NFL. Football season, this is going to be really crazy to say, but legitimately kind of sort of around the corner. Um, And next week's guest actually is starting to kind of get into his hot season, so I'm glad we had a chance to catch up with Tennessee Titans voice Mike Keith prior to the NFL season and the NFL preseason really starting to get churning here uh, over the next couple of months. Tennessee Titans voice Mike Keith will be our guest next week on the podcast. It'll be episode number 54. It'll be right back here if you click download or subscribe. Anyway, music's playing, which means we got to get up on out of here. So many thanks again to Brian Seaman for being our guest this week on the podcast. Many thanks, as always, to you for clicking subscribe or download. And we'll talk to you next week with Tennessee Titans voice Mike Keith here on Play by Playcast. Hit it, Marshmallow. Marshmallow.